Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Hercules and Victors. My Olympian mission is to promote lifelong personal development, human empowerment, out-of-the-box thinking, creative self-expression, and the dedication of one's unique talents to community service. All of my labors in this lifetime celebrate the hero's journey in myth, legend, spirituality, popular culture, and in daily life. I firmly believe that the human spirit is essentially heroic and always seeking ways to express its innate nobility and greatness, and that a life fully lived, dedicated to actualizing the highest we can conceive, is the noblest expression of human existence. I am honored to introduce one of those heroes, uh, Nick Curdo. Uh, Nick is well known to all who listen to our podcast, and uh, he does so many things it's hard to keep uh, track of them, including go to the United Nations, leave the Disclosure Network in New York, which we'll be exploring a little bit more about today, uh, and also uh, having your Rantia book readings in New York City. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So without further ado, greetings and welcome, Nick. Oh, Hercules, thank you so much for your very, very kind words. Uh, it's always an honor to be with you, and uh, you're a dear friend, an amazing producer. And I just want to make a quick comment. Sure. A wonderful opening that you just did. I love that so much. That Thank has you. so much meaning. It is powerful. It's loving. Wow, just amazing. Just I, I want to at some point get a uh, a hard copy of that so that I could uh, perhaps uh, print it up and, and frame it. It's gorgeous. Well, thank you. I will send you a copy. It's it's on my website. It's the homepage for my website. Uh, and I haven't worked on my website for a while, so I was revisiting it. And uh, um, I figured I would share it uh, on the podcast today. But thank you very much for your kind words. And I'll get that to you uh, tonight. Oh, thank you. Now, Nick, as you know, 
Um, one of the things that uh, we share is a love for the people of this uh, planet. And each of us in our own way uh, gives as much as we could possibly give at any given moment uh, to making the world a better place. And one of the things that you do um, is uh, the Disclosure Network on New York. And uh, I had the uh, show featured on other segments on other podcasts, and you have a show now. Uh, where you talk about the Disclosure Network. But uh, here on the Elysium Project, um, we focus a lot on uh, politics. And uh, I thought it would be a great thing for people to learn about uh, yourself and Disclosure Network New York, because um, right now we live in an age where we don't know what to believe, where we're flooded with so much information that it's hard to focus on anything uh, and take action, but we need to take action. And uh, you have brought us a great service through DNNY, and you're informing people about all the things that um, are beyond the distraction of the news that's hitting you every day uh, that aren't being looked at, that aren't being addressed. And uh, folks dismiss them very easily, uh, but later on it turns out that a lot of them are true. So um, without further ado, uh, uh, I, I bring the ball to your court. Okay, well, I have a scoop, uh, a real scoop for you. But before I do that, let me just briefly say that the uh, Disclosure Network New York is going to be celebrating our 18th year uh, of two meetings a month throughout the year in December. I am very, very proud of that. It was a very ambitious project. Um, we, it was a project of total love. We thought that it was, uh, it was important that in New York City we have a a UFO uh, paranormal phenomenon research group. Uh, we named it Disclosure Network New York. And uh, uh, Mary Jo Fahey and I uh, started this group. Uh, and uh, Mary Jo is, has moved from New York City, and she's uh, actually going to be in a, my, one of my podcasts very, very soon. I'm oh, very great. excited about that. Me and, too. Uh, she is, oh, she's dynamite, absolute dynamite. She's a fierce researcher. And she is layered. When she comes up with something, it is layered with research, and and it, it's always a, a total pleasure. So I'm very excited that she's accepted to be on uh, the, uh, my podcast for uh, Disclosure Network New York. Um, and uh, what I wanted to uh, say, and this is a scoop because I don't think anybody knows this yet, I was invited to a sneak preview of a staged reading of a brand-new play. And it was at the um, uh, a, a theater for the New City and the East Village, and it was a couple nights ago. And uh, when I found out the title and what it was about, I said, "Sign me up! I'm there." And 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 it's called uh, an interrupted journey. The interrupted journey. And uh, wow. interesting title. And if, uh, uh, Hercules, are you familiar with Betty and Barney Hill's yes, story? Yes, of course I am. Yes, it, it well, ushered a new age with the abductions. Right, exactly. And these were two uh, wonderful, very average kind of people. They were a, a – uh, he was, he was African-American and she was white, so it was a biracial couple, and that was many, many years ago, which was really uh, something to, to deal with for them, uh, it, let alone. And uh, they um, 
were driving uh, through the mountainous area of uh, New Hampshire, and it was at night, and it was a beautiful clear sky, and all of a sudden, she said something caught her eye, and, and Betty said, Some, something is following us, something is up in the sky. And Barney said, well, it's got to be maybe a weather balloon. Or he, and she said, no, no, it's nothing like that. He said, maybe it's a plane. She said, no, it doesn't look like a plane at all. This is very different, and it's got lights on it. I've never seen anything like it. And he was driving. Again, it was a very uh, late evening so that there weren't any other cars on the road. They were quite alone. And she started screaming. She said, it's coming closer. It's following us. And eventually, he literally stopped the car in the middle of the highway. Again, there weren't any cars coming, so that was okay for the time being. And he looked up, and he couldn't believe his eyes because what Betty was reporting to him is exactly what she was seeing. And then, uh, uh, here we go, it landed. Uh, now, mm -hmm. the thing that's interesting is that Betty and, and Barney Hill uh, – couldn't remember the next two hours after that. They, it, it, their mind was completely erased. They couldn't remember anything. They simply, uh, they found themselves back in the car, and they went home, and they turned the lights on. It was very late, and, and Betty had a white powder on her dress, and her uh, a private area was, was feeling strange, strange. Mm -hmm. And so was his. And then he looked down at his new shoes, and they looked like he had been in the woods hiking for a couple of weeks. They were all scuffed and muddy. He said, how in the world did that happen? Um, this was – they just couldn't imagine what was going on. And anyhow, the story continues from there. Well, eventually, eventually, um, Betty started bringing it up, and Barney said, look it um, – we have both got good jobs. If we start saying that we saw something like this, they are going to, uh, whatever it was, uh, they still wasn't sure what it was. He said, I'll be fired and so will you. We'll be the laughing stock of the community. We cannot say anything to anybody and not, let's just drop the subject. Let's not even talk about it with each other. Please promise me. And they made a pact never to discuss it again with either themselves or anybody else, family, friends, anybody. Anyhow, uh, we'll skip to the part where they decide to go to regressive hypnotism mm -hmm. to see how, how they could explain the missing time. Uh, again, when they got back, they noticed that the time on the clock and on their watches was very different. That didn't make any sense either. They really were stumped. The bottom line is they went through regressive hypnosis, both of them. Barney didn't want to do it at all. Betty did it first on the first session. And I think the following week, Barney was persuaded by Betty, please, Barney, please, we got to find out what this is. So they did it separately with, with this doctor, um, a, a very reputable doctor. And he asked if he could tape everything. So he recorded all the sessions. So the writers of this wonderful play, this new play, took the, took the exact uh, recordings of what was being said with the doctor and Betty, and another time with uh, uh, Barney and the doctor separately, and they, they did regressive hypnotism, 
And the doctor was quite successful in regressing them both. And what what you're seeing in the play is the uh, actress who was playing Betty and the actor who was playing Barney, word for word, acting what was on the tape. And I'm telling you, the audience, including moi, (laughs) was on the edge of our chairs. Now, some of the people in the audience um, were very familiar with stories like this or maybe have seen a UFO in their lives, but a lot of people there have it. But you could have heard a pin drop in this in this little theater. Absolutely. Now, wow. interesting to know. Can you, can you, Hercules? Can you imagine that evening? It was only a couple of nights ago. And interestingly enough, the woman, the actress who plays Betty, is none other than Shirley MacLaine's daughter. <laughs> and you know what? I. I I, I never saw her act before, but when she came on the stage, you could have sworn it was Shirley MacLaine. She looks almost dead on what Shirley MacLaine looks like, and uh, it's just the way it's just the way she looks. And the the man who plays Barney happens to be Richard Pryor Jr. So there's a, a great cast. I wish we had more than like four more minutes because uh, this is really interesting. We'll have to continue it on another show. How can folks sure. tap into the uh, um, Disclosure Network New York? I'll be speaking there in early December, and I'm really looking forward to that, and I'm honored that that's uh, your anniversary month. Uh, it, but, is. it is. I can't think of a more appropriate person to do a talk than you. Thank so you. I'm very, very excited about that. Uh, to get us, they can simply go online, and it's very simple. Our, our whole name is Disclosure Network New York, and they can go to www.dnny.info, I-N-F-O, and they'll go right to the website, and they'll find out about us and what the next meeting is about. Again, that's dnny.info. Also, they are certainly welcome to give me a call if they'd like. My phone number is 917-701-9033. And if they have any questions, I'd be delighted to try to answer them. That is awesome. And you also have a news blast that uh, sends people uh, all the information that uh, you gather. And uh, you've constructed a list of uh, priorities. And when I start my thing here in uh, Bergen County, uh, I'll be working very closely with you and your list. And uh, I'm looking forward to speaking there and having you speak at what you get up here. I also look forward to that. It's a very, very exciting time. I've come across some new information that is absolutely cutting edge and connects the dots uh, more than you'd ever imagine. So I'm very excited about the, what's coming up. And I'm very looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, you're awesome, and I'll talk to you very soon. Okay. Uh, love to everyone. Good night. Good night. We're going to listen to Bone Post Orchestra's Evolve, and then we'll be back with Christine Evron speaking for the Northern Valley Greenway Project.
Project. I'm Hercules Invictus, and this is our Age of Heroes segment. And uh, this term can definitely be applied to my next guest, Christine Dowler Edron. She's the president of the Tenfly Chamber of Commerce. Uh, she is a Rotarian of high rank, and she is the founder of the Northern Valley Greenway Project, which uh, I totally support. It is an awesome, awesome, awesome project, and it's a great honor to watch it manifest before my eyes. Greetings and welcome, Christine. How are you? Thank you. I'm very excited. We just had a wonderful presentation to the Bergen County Freeholders. Fantastic. So it's very exciting. So th this project, I remember, and it was on the show, too, when this was an idea 
uh, in your mind. And I feel greatly honored uh, to be watching this idea become more and more of a reality as, as time uh, passes. Um, and uh, I was really amazed at the presentation today. It was so very well organized and uh, focused and uh, uh, all everything that needed to be said was said. Well, thank you. I have to say that this kind of project, you know, somebody could have, I was not by any means the first person to have this idea. This is an idea that has been floating through Bergen County for a long time. And there are so many things out there to help people do things like get a rail to trail in their backyard. You just have to be persistent to get it built. We spent a good year and a half making sure that the rail was available. We made sure that there was a lot of community support for it. And then we took another year where NJDOT, the Department of Transportation, did an immense amount of work for us. They spent a year putting together a study that I basically lifted parts of to put that presentation together. And it was all paid for um, by the government wanting to make our roads safer for people who are bicycling, people who are pedestrians, and even for the drivers. So they're right. investing in these rails to trails. Wow, I remember those meetings uh, too. Uh, those were very well attended and uh, uh, people really got involved and uh, were uh, sharing their tales as to why they thought it was a, a great thing, not a good thing, but a great thing and how much it would uh, enhance our lives. And it's tying together lots of communities, not just uh, the Tenafly community. Uh, it's, it's tying together lots of communities. So we have six communities that actually are on the line. But all the communities around the line recognize how valuable this is to their residents. And it's amazing how the government works. We saw them taking everyone's, keeping meticulous track of everyone's opinion and their ideas to make this a better project. But that was one very small piece of the research they did on this project. They spent hours pouring over government records on where there were environmentally fragile areas, making sure that we weren't going through um, environmentally fragile areas, for instance, in a way that couldn't be handled properly. They checked where the historic landmarks were because you must um, take special precautions within 200 yards of a national uh, landmark. They just surveyed the entire track so we knew how wide it was at all points. Just an amazing, they, they surveyed all the accident records for the last 10 years, I think it was, on every intersection so that they would wow. have a baseline to know what kinds of controls would need to be implemented to make it a safer in intersection. Just an immense amount of detail goes into these kinds of projects. Yes, uh, I remember when the first uh, um, in infomercial or the, the short informational video was uh, being filmed, and I remember uh, how much effort went into that, and that was just a minor piece of uh, what was going on at the time. Well, that was an outreach, but they put in 
there must have been a team of about six consultants worked for almost a year. Not not 100%, but nevertheless, six consultants working for about a year. They put together a 250-page uh, feasibility study just to determine whether or not this idea would be worth continuing to look at. Because obviously, if there's a fatal flaw, if there's an endangered species, if there were a toxic dump underneath the track, there'd be no point spending more money and more time on it. And they very thoroughly looked into everything and determined that it was it was good to go. And they gave us a great basis for building our next steps on. So now we're looking at what are the next steps. It's great, too, that you have local governmental uh, support. Uh, uh, Lauren gave a, a wonderful and stirring uh, speech uh, tonight about uh, the need for the Greenway project. And uh, um, everyone spoke from the heart when they were talking about what this project means to them personally, to our community, to communities around us, to Bergen County as a whole. Uh, uh, so, uh, again, it was very moving and very informative. I have to say, I was most impressed by somebody I had no idea was going to speak, and I don't even know her name told a personal story about how yeah, yeah. it will change whether or not she stays in Bergen County now that she is older and she was looking to move to a place where she could be outdoors more. And this will allow her not only to be outdoors more, to feel safe being outdoors and hiking and bicycling, but allow her to visit with her grandchildren in a safe way. And I was I mean, impressed. That was amazing. Yeah, that, that, was, that was truly uh, amazing. Um, and uh, there were people that had other things that they were there to talk about, uh, and yet they <laughs> mentioned the Greenway Project. Uh, so that was incredible as well, that uh, uh, their causes were important. They talked about their causes, but they, uh, they added uh, their opinion to the opinion of others, that, that this is something that should definitely be supported and uh, uh, go forward. That was very gratifying because the, the freeholders spend a lot of time on the problems that are truly awful for some people that we might not see at a municipal level, but they're dealing with the immigrants and how to deal with ICE. They're dealing with the homeless. Um, they're looking at suicide prevention on a much larger scale than a single municipality, that they had such significant problems and also help us with, it's a lovely project, but it's, it's not quite on the same importance to people's lives as some of these other truly awful problems. But they, they listened to all of them. It's very impressive. Yes, it was very impressive. And uh, now I want to attend more freeholder meetings uh, to support the things that I strongly believe in. Um, despite the fact that I'm busy all the time, I always feel like I'm not doing or you know enough, you know. So I try to figure out ways uh, where I can uh, do the most uh, good with what time, energy, and resources uh, and mentation lately, because my mind has been flooding lately. Uh, so going to freeholders meetings is now on my list of things to try to figure out how to you know, budget in. Uh, so because that, that was a very good experience uh, for me as well. Now, 
I would like to continue covering the Greenway project. Uh, and uh, I did get contact information from some of the other people who were talking about uh, other issues. Um, but uh, um, how often would it be good to have like an update on the Greenway project? Probably every three to six months. There's not okay. a lot that's, I mean, we're in the process. We, we just finished this massive study or NJ, NJ Department of Transportation um, wrapped up this massive study that took a year for us. We're now going out and just reporting to the freeholders and to the six municipalities and then to the six municipalities around the track about what they said because getting the message out is a big part of what we need to do. So that's going to take a couple months alone. And then we have to work out exactly where the next step even is. You know, who is responsible for giving the green light? These things aren't as obvious as you think they ought to be. No. Or you think I, they I, I would be. Um, so if we did something like every three to four months, uh, that would be good. That would be and perfect. I, and how about on Facebook, um, would you like me to post something once a month directing people to the uh, um, the support page? That would be lovely. I mean, a lot of the working on a greenway, there's a lot of government money. There's some government money for early studies, but most of the money is constrained to be used after you purchase the greenway. And to purchase it, there are a lot of upfront costs. Getting help with those costs through donations is really the only way we can make this go forward. So donations would be very appreciated. And will there be uh, events uh, in Tenafly and the surrounding uh, boroughs to uh, uh, fundraisers uh, to help uh, raise this money? I'm sure there will be. We haven't planned them yet. Okay. And I have to say, people just asking for money, people have been sending in money, and it's been very helpful. And they've been very generous just from asking, not even having events. That is good to know. Because it does help us concentrate on getting the project done, not diverting our attention to fundraisers. Yeah, it's always better when uh, people, you know, when you don't have to plan these type of things and, and people just give. And I'm glad that that's uh, happening with uh, the Greenway. Um, this is, I think, uh, the Rotary Club getting involved in this uh, was a blessing as well. Uh, and uh, it, it is awesome the things that the Rotary does in our community and beyond. It was the Rotary's reputation that got this moving and got CSX to say, yes, we want to do it. That, that is so, awesome. And the Rotary is uh, doing so many wonderful things. I've been talking to individual members about sharing uh, some of these things. And uh, uh, that's uh, coming, starting with Paul uh, Lefkowitz, uh, who is mm -hmm. uh, uh, focusing his energies on trying to end human trafficking. Yes. He's very interested in that, has brought in some fabulous speakers. Uh, I have a sort of novel approach to that. I actually ran into a young folk singer or um, pair of folk singers, Driftwood Soldiers, that I would love us to get them to write 
a song against trafficking. Um, I haven't quite figured out how we'll do this yet, but that's how I you think we can help. <laughs> okay, let's let's talk. And anything that I could uh, possibly do, I, I will do. I believe in this uh, project uh, very strongly. And uh, um, we have a few more minutes, so I wanted to bring up the Tenafly Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Tenafly is very fortunate in having a Chamber of Commerce, uh, and it's phenomenally fortunate in having you as uh, the president. This is one of the most active and caring chambers uh, uh, I've ever had to uh, uh, interact with. So thank you. You've made being in the chamber a uh, a fun and a meaningful experience. Well, thank you. We're we're getting into our fall season. That's when we develop the, our coffee giveaway cards, which are traffic cards, where various merchants donate coffee. They're put together a card, and then we give these cards to all the nonprofit groups in town to sell. And we get we make a thousand of these cards, and we get they get to be sold for ten dollars each. So we can raise as much as ten thousand dollars for these nonprofits. They keep all of the money. The businesses get traffic into their businesses that they might not already have gotten as people cash in the tabs on the card to get a free cup of coffee or a, not a free cup of coffee, but a prepaid cup of coffee. Then we have our, of course, our street fair, October 18th and 19th, and we'll be having our holiday parade in December. I look forward to that. I'm, I've been part of that for many years, and uh, uh, that's something I believe in very strongly as well. And uh, I'll need to get uh, more information about the October uh, street fair because uh, um, we're starting a nonprofit, and uh, we have tons and tons and tons of books. <laughs> so I was thinking of uh, uh, offering the books inexpensively so we could uh, start funding some of our nonprofit activities. So I will talk to you about that. Oh, excellent. Okay. And I'm honored to announce that Christine will be on more often again um, because we're going to be starting Prosperity Quest uh, once again. We, we were doing that. It was a lot of fun. It was very informative and had lots of great advice for those of you who want to start uh, businesses or remain in business. So that's uh, coming back soon as well. Christine, thank you so very much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, I enjoyed this a great deal, um, and I look forward to the next time we speak. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Though not as exciting as the previous uh, speaker. He thought it interesting. <laughs> Fun, well, I should say. You're, you're interesting. He's interesting, too. Uh, he, he's very interesting, in fact. And uh, uh, I'm going to speak there in December. Um, and uh, they, I wasn't aware of it until tonight that it's their anniversary, and they, they scheduled me to speak during their anniversary. So uh, I'm very honored, and uh, he has his hand on the pulse of all these uh, paranormal and UFO type of things, um, and uh, I'm starting something like that here in Bergen County. Uh, that's been many months in the making, and one of the many things drawing me deeper and deeper into, into my imagination and into networking. But we'll speak about that another day. Thanks again, Christine. Excellent. Thank you. We Bye. are now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Uh, we're going to listen to King of Dreams by Brian Kerdorian, and then we'll be back with The Sussex Report, hosted by Astrid.
Greetings and welcome back to the Elysium Project. I am Hercules Invictus and I'm blessed by knowing many amazing people, including our host for the Sussex Report, Astrid. And tonight she has a special guest, Karen and Quinlan Hospice Center's Manager of Special Events, Jennifer Smith. Greetings and welcome, Astrid. Greetings and welcome, Hercules. And you are way too kind with your compliments. <laughs> uh, no, I am not. I, I am blessed by knowing phenomenally amazing people. And you are definitely a phenomenally amazing person. Everyone who knows you thinks so. And we repeat this to ourselves often because it's true. Well, the next person, my guest, Jennifer Smith, is another amazing person because the programs and events that she puts together for the Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice Center is totally amazing. And before I begin with Jennifer, I just would like to lay the foundation for those of our listeners who are totally unaware of what Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice is and how it began. Back in 1975, Julia and Joseph Quinlan, their life changed forever. Their daughter lapsed into a coma. She had CPR, which was administered. She was brought to Newton Memorial Hospital and placed on life support. She was transferred to St. Clair's with an irreversible, irreversible coma. This was an amazing landmark case because Julia and Joseph had to endure years of watching their daughter in this vegetable state and having the right to have her pass peacefully and with respect. They lost their petition in Superior Court, and they brought their case before the Supreme Court. The New Jersey Supreme Court gave a 7-0 to zero ruling, a decision, which set several legal, very many legal and medical precedents in 1976. He became, the father became her legal guardian, and she was moved to the Morris View Nursing Home. She was taken off her respiratory, resp- respiration, which was fed by tubes, for 10 years. The parents had to endure this to watch their daughter go from a vibrant, beautiful person to a person that had no life, that was in a vegetable state, and the description with reading the book that the parents had had written, it was amazing what they endured. From that event, when she finally did pass from respiratory failure, they opened their hospice center. They took their own personal tragedy and turned it into a support system for others, which I find so amazing that they could dig deep down within themselves and do do this for others based on what happened to them. Jennifer, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. Now, can you go through the years and tell us how this idea transformed into the hospice center? Most certainly. Um, As you had just stated, um, Joseph and Julia, as well as their children, Mary Ellen and John Quinlan, they were brought through this tumultuous journey that ultimately changed the world's view on right to die 
as well as many things that each of us um, encounter when we walk into a medical procedure. For instance, advanced directives and living wills. It's the fight from the Quinlan family that um, set this in motion and really protected worldwide so many patients and families from then on. But um, the Quinlans, Julia Quinlan, who is our CEO and very much involved in a leadership role with our agency to this day, I'm proud to say that she is 92 and as active and passionate about the mission as she and Joe were when this first began. Um, she works diligently to continue to educate and to continue to safeguard people who are encountering, encountering end-of-life trials. Um, I'm excited to announce that she has written her third book, the first two books, um, Karen Ann Quinlan, which is how our hospice started. Joe and Julia actually took the monies raised from that first book, and that was the seed money to create, create the Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice. But um, she also wrote My Joy and My Sorrow. And coming out in November is her third book, A Legacy of Love, again, which just um, highlights the Quinlan stories and the growth of the hospice as we approach 40 years of caring for our community. We're extremely proud that um, 2020 will mark our 40th anniversary. And um, it's truly an honor to, to meet patients and families at their time of need. Wow. And how many centers does uh, the Quinlan Hospice have now? We operate, we, we provide um, hospice care throughout northwest New Jersey, Sussex County, and Warren County. And we also provide care in Pike County, Pennsylvania. So um, we do have an office in Pike County. We have our administrative office in the town of Newton. Five years ago this year, we opened up Karen and Quinlan Home for Hospice. And that was a milestone and certainly a, a goal for the Quinlan family um, to create a standalone 10-room home, an award-winning, stunning home with scenic views, top-notch staff, and an absolutely beautiful setting that embraces not only the patient, but the entire family who choose to come into the home-like setting instead of bringing their, their loved one home. And there, a lot of times there's a number of circumstances where bringing a loved one home might not be the most ideal situation. So having the home for hospice um, gives us great pride and has certainly been a phenomenal resource, resource for the past five years. But in addition to those um, outreaches, we are also proud to share with the community the Joseph T. Quinlan Bereavement Center. That is named in honor of Joe Quinlan and all of the work and passion that he had for the hospice mission. And the Bereavement Center is open to the entire community, not only those who have suffered a loss through our hospice program, for anybody within the community who is suffering from or seeking to know more about the grief that they're enduring. So our, our team at the Bereavement Center is an amazingly knowledgeable and embracing team of bereavement professionals and counselors. So again, I, I encourage anybody who's seeking support from grief 
to look Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice, look at the website, KarenAnnQuinlanHospice.org, and there will be links to the bereavement center and the programs that are offered. You know, Jen, I looked at the site, and I went to uh, different types of grief counseling. I am amazed at how in-depth and organized this website is. Uh, For instance, I'm looking at at the different, um, this one page, the website, which talks about the different type of support groups, the different type of group meetings that you have in Sussex County, Warren County, and Pike County, which is in Milford, PA. And then it mentions special groups and workshops. It talks about school bereavement support groups. It talks about memorial services. I am so impressed. It talks about pet loss support group. You have a Which children's. I think that's amazing. Children's and, bereavement and, art program, grief lecture series. It's not just one little thing. You have so many different outreaches here. Without a doubt, as I had stated, as the professional team at the Joseph T. Quinlan Bereavement Center, they look at the community and they see the needs that are, are established, and they they devise programs to embrace each of those situations. Certainly, our kids art program from um, that's designed for children ages six through twelve. That is a group of individuals that clearly grieve differently than a number of the uh, of the rest of the family members. So they design this workshop, this four-week workshop, to explore areas of grief and share education. Uh, they're extremely proud, and I'm extremely proud to say that they simultaneously have an adult session going on in another room, which helps the adults who love these children better understand what they may be going through. And after these four weeks, we have just touch so many family members as they're walking through their journey of grief. But on top of that, we also feel that it's important to educate. So um, throughout the year, we do have workshops and education sessions, not only for um, schools throughout the community who send their teachers to learn more about how to support kids in grief, but we also have um, a, a number of education series for churches and other established groups, the more people who understand the grieving process and the support system, the more people are supported truly in our communities. So their, their goals are high, and their plan is to teach, embrace, and educate where the need is, is well, where the, um, where the education is needed. Most definitely, and I know the Quinlans pledged through their memorial foundation back in 1980 to never turn a patient away due to financial situations, and I'm aware that this is done through fundraising, donations from individuals, groups, and businesses. Could you please expand upon fundraising and the great events that you hold? Absolutely. I have the honor of managing the special events um, for Karen and Quinlan Hospice, and that is not a solo effort. We have an amazing team who are very talented, and um, we work passionately throughout the year to create different venues and different themes, um, not only to raise the funds that are needed, but to continually educate the public that we are here for them. So it could be a great festival. Uh, event 
but when they walk away knowing that not only did they support a hospice family and or patient, but possibly realize that we are here for them down the road, you know, when that need may arise in their, in their family. But um, we start off each year with a full calendar, and the spectrum of events range from a high tea in February. And Astrid, I, I know you um, attend our, our paper shirt events, and believe it or not, the paper <laughs> shirt events that are, that are um, hosted by SK Paper Shred, there's such a need in the community and we hold several of these a year. Ultimately, what it is is our guests come with their confidential papers. We provide that service. But again, it's a service that's well, can't, we can't, keeping your confidential information proper, or properly destroying it. But certainly, there's a number of families who join us who maybe, um, maybe just face a challenging time or are disassembling a home of a family member who is no longer with them. And the service is well-received, and we've, we're in our 13th year of Paper Shreds. So our wow. next event is on Saturday, November 9th, and then we'll pause throughout the winter months. But um, on top of that, we it, the, the span just continues. We just concluded our very popular Wine and Cheese Festival. It's actually the 35th annual Wine and Cheese Festival. It was hosted in Frieden. And we welcomed approximately 500 guests to a beautiful farm. And we're most proud of this event because on the hilltop overlooking the farm where it's hosted stands our home for hospice. So it was um, a number of comments, a number of guests who, who stopped and, and asked what the structure was on top of the hill. And when they did find out that it was our home for hospice, it's just a meaningful, beautiful Structure that really overlooks one of the most beautiful valleys um, overlooking the Kitty Kane Mountain Range. So um, after the wine and cheese, we we continue. I have annual butterfly release celebrations, annual Lights of Life tree lighting memorials. These are extremely special events that are hosted in all three counties. Obviously, the butterfly is hosted in June, but our tree lighting is hosted in early December. We're passionate about providing a tree lighting opportunity for families to to remember their loved ones throughout the holiday. But we're very sensitive in hosting it early within the holiday season so they have a moment before things get too hectic to come together and reflect and honor. And we're extremely proud of, of all three of those services each year. You and know, Jennifer, I have got to tell you, that is the most stunning beautiful celebration. Matter of fact, I I do it every year with the butterfly release and I also do the uh the Christmas lights, but the butterfly release it is just it is. so emotional and you know, having the names read out and the the, the beautiful caring way that your team at, at hospice presents this it is stunning. And matter of fact, this year I was able to bring Hercules and his wife up to Pike County to participate because they recently lost their auntie that went through a lot, you know, with Alzheimer's that lived with them. And, and he was so impressed. And yeah, the question was, was can we do one for a pet? <laughs> 
Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And uh, uh, we are very proud of our butterfly release celebrations. And we call this a celebration, even though it's met with such tender memories and such emotion. Um, we do, we do strive to celebrate those who have touched our lives. And um, and the event again hosted in all three counties. Each county has a different feel. Um, uh, the Warren County release is hosted at a butterfly garden. So that's certainly the, the magic of the butterfly garden. And to see the, the garden's growth every year lends a, um, you know, a wonderful setting. And then in Newton, in Sussex County, we have religiously used the campus at Sussex County Community College. The setting is not only uh, so well known in the county seat, but the space is gorgeous and the grounds are wonderful and it welcomes hundreds of families who over the years have begun to begun bringing blankets and making it a, a comfortable setting as hundreds gather for this memorial. And certainly Pike County is so tender because in beautiful Milford, Pennsylvania, the borough of Milford has give, granted us permission to use their memorial park gazebo year after year and it's a beautiful intimate celebration and one of my favorite because as this thoughtful celebration is going on many years you can still hear the kids playing in the park and the people walking by and life still going on and it's a wonderful symbolized you know vision of we are surviving we are still gathering we're celebrating and life is continuing on around us so we're we're extremely proud of these events. And you have several coming up immediately. <laughs> oh my gosh! No, October and November meet us um, with many many events, and I am so excited to to go over the uh, the upcoming lineup. Next week, we are gathering for our 5K, it's Celebrate a Life 5K, and that's at the Sussex County Fairgrounds. It's, it's for families to meet and, and remember their loved ones, celebrate their loved ones. We have memorial signs and families who gather and, and wear T-shirts um, on behalf of somebody that they're walking for. It's uplifting. It's a phenomenal day. I invite registrations are still available. Come one, come all. You're more than welcome to join us at the fairgrounds. Saturday, September 28th, the registration starts at nine o'clock. The walk will begin at 10, but all of our events can be found on the website. Um, as I mentioned before, KarenAnnQuinlanHospice.org. But right after that is a fashion show. So we flip gears and our fashion show is another annual favorite. We reach out to community leaders and um, just well-known community figures, and we ask them to model for us. So we have 10 men and 10 women, and um, we are working with Deb So-and-So. They're based out of Lafayette, New Jersey. She's um, just a generous, talented owner who really is a perfect – she pairs – the designs and um, and the uplifting evening. It's, it's upbeat. It's a great fundraiser. Again, that is Thursday, November 7th at the conservatory. Once again, it's um, on the grounds of Sussex County Fairgrounds in Augusta, New Jersey. I had mentioned before our, our paper shred. That's on November 9th. 
And quickly following on November 11th is our Dental Day for Hospice. And we're extremely proud of Dental Day for Hospice. It is hosted by Sparta Dental Designs, and it's sponsored by um, Benco Dental and personally sponsored by Preston Hay, who is a representative of Benco Dental. Um, it's, an, it's a morning. It's from 8 to 1. And Dr. Turpak and his team, um, the, the dental services that are provided that day, turn into a donation to our hospice. And this is um, close to two decades of them doing this annually. They like to do it um, in November because November is National Hospice Month. And Dr. Turpak is one of our board members. And Mrs. Laura Turpak, certainly a volunteer for many years on our Friends of Hospice um, Ancillary Volunteer Group. So they are right in line with our mission and so supportive of all we do. And then, believe it or not, we've changed the venue again, and we have a haircut for hospice. That's on <laughs> November 14th. So, wow. again, the spectrum of events, we are very busy. But, again, we, we line up with so many different um, businesses and themes. But, ultimately, the Haircuts for Hospice is where a number of salons sign up. We promote it through um, our website and print media. And they determine how much, what hours, and in what level they're going to support the hospice. But we ask that um, their endeavors take place on Thursday, November 14th. And for a list of salons that are participating in this year's Haircuts for Hospice, it also can be found on our website. And finally, as I'd mentioned, the Lights of Life. And we will wrap up December with our drawing for the Half for Hospice, which is an, a year-long raffle that is hosted by the Friends of Hospice. And for the last two years, we've given um, $9,000 $200 the first year and 9100 the second year. So we're striving to sell out all of our tickets and award this year's winner a $10,000 prize. And that will be drawn on Wednesday, December 7th at our hospice office in Newton. Wow. And we're really just hoping to change somebody's holiday season <laughs> with an amazing gift. And um, our tickets are available. Certainly we have a number of sales opportunities throughout the three counties, but also available online. And you still have some available because I'm aware of the fact you only have 4,000 tickets sold. We, yes, yes. So we've kept it to a firm number. And again, our, our total earnings is 20 with half for hospice and half for that very, very lucky winner. So I That's hope fantastic. to call you on December 11th. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yes, it would. And, and you know, Karen, all, all, I mean, uh, Jennifer, the, all it takes is one event. I know I became familiar with the center actually through the paper shredding event. And by going there to uh, take care of a need, and I, I knew of the hospice center, I figured, you know, I'd rather do it directly to a nonprofit that that did such a does such a worthwhile um, cause and 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 so many efforts involved all the way around, and by doing that, as I entered to make my little payment, there is a large table there with all of the different events and all of the amazing opportunities uh, that that exist within 
the Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice Center. I was amazed at all the programs. And I really would ask our listeners to um, go online and look at the website and see that all that is on there because it is amazing, that website. And everything is so easy and it's so self-explanatory and so detailed. Or take a walk and go over, visit, because everybody is so wonderful there. And look at that table. Pick up, you know, a hard copy, a document to have at home. Uh, it does make a difference because I was astounded at all that is presented by this center. Astrid, that means so much coming from you because we've noted, we've known each other for years, and it was a simple meeting at one of our events. But your enthusiasm for the work we do means so much because your word of mouth helps make such a difference. It could be a family member who eventually may need a hospice, but your knowledge of what we do may share share our mission with them. So all of your support is greatly, greatly appreciated. And um, as you say, so many programs and so many things happening. I just wanted to touch on how the families are embraced by our hospice. They often think that, you know, a nurse will come to their home. But it's an entire team of professionals that come to a family's home or obviously meet them at the home for hospice if that is the direction that the family chooses to go. And each family is met with not only a care manager, but we have a chaplain should there be spiritual needs. We have a volunteer coordinator who meets not only with the caregiver, but with the patient to not only make sure that respite is provided for the caregiver, but um, avenues and the right fit for a volunteer who may just come by on a regular basis for a visit to tell stories, to spend time with. It's, um, it's a really crucial role, not only to give that respite to the caregiver, but to share that socialization with the, with the patients that we are working with. You'll also have a social worker these social workers not only assess the situation, but they point and they point the caregivers in needs and support avenues that um, may assist in in the process. We're very proud of the work the work that we do with veterans and um, and making sure that the veterans that are in our programs are receiving what is available to them. On top of that, um, with with the medical doctor and our nurses. Again, there's a whole spectrum of people who walk in and embrace not only the, the patient, but every single family, family member. Yeah, it is amazing, Jen, you know, how about the wide spectrum. And, and as I'm going to your site and I see all the different services, I do see a subcategory for volunteering. How can I lend a hand? And you do have that people can access there a volunteer brochure. You that you go into detail about the reasons for volunteering, and I love it because it's, you know, it's there's never just a give. It's a give and take. You learn. I would always tell the kids when I was teaching art, I learn from you as much as you learn from me. It's a give, give. Win-win situation, and I love it because it says your volunteering can lead to new learning, new skills, can help you go outside of yourself and meet new challenges, help you meet new people, make you feel needed, 
create new contacts, which can help your business, career, or social life. Now, I also see you go into detail about just some of the things you can do for volunteering. Um, I know you have a training program, and there are specific things people can do. Can you talk about that a little bit? Without a doubt. Our volunteer coordinator, um, she's um, Sue Doherty. She's been with the agency for nearly two decades and is so enthusiastic about her role with Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice. And each year she hosts three training programs, um, one in each county that we serve. So Sussex County is going on as we speak. And then Warren County and Pike County will also be hosted throughout the next year. And these volunteer training programs are for individuals who wish to provide patient care volunteers, um, wish to be patient care volunteers. And it's a, a multi-day, that's a six to eight session volunteer course, um, extensive training. And Sue lines it up so that all of our key personnel take days to go in and train. And there, there will be a, a chaplain training, a social work training, um, all the different rules and, and things that um, not only for HIPAA-related, but health-related um, do's and don'ts that they have to encounter. To be a hospice-trained volunteer, they have to successfully go through this course, and then they are able to determine their schedule. They work with Sue, and Sue has a fabulous talent of lining up their personalities with the people who were serving. Again, there could be a, a gentleman who was a veteran. We have, there may be a, a male volunteer who has a similar sports interest. This pairing um, often creates wonderful friendships, not only with the patient and the volunteer, but with the entire family and volunteer. So again, I, I encourage people to look further um, into the volunteer training programs that are available throughout the year, and I, um, I can't stress enough that your time and your availability is certainly um, up to you, and we work around that. And then there's a number of people who come to us um, who don't necessarily want to work in the home. So we have the Friends of Hospice, and the Friends of Hospice are a group of men and women who work very closely with me. I had mentioned before um, the Wine and Cheese Festival or the Half for Hospice. These events are specifically hosted by the Friends of Hospice, and this volunteer group is committed to not only raising funds all throughout the year, but in turn raising awareness for the hospice mission, and they do such an amazing job at that. So it is my pleasure to serve as the liaison for the group working with, with the Friends of Hospice um, clearly leading them through what is needed on the hospice direction. And at the end of every year, their proceeds are then donated to the hospice um, and the bereavement center. And the, um, the group gets such pride in not only the hard work that they have, you know, shared all year long, but the funds that are generated to in turn know and present um, at a holiday gathering gives them great pride and certainly so appreciated from every member of our staff and board. And um, then a lot of, as a side note, a lot of our friends of hospice, these are people who we may have helped a family member in the past. It's their way of giving back. 
So um, there's so many ways to get back to our organization. If Friends of Hospice is not in line with your schedule, you can always reach out to me. And if there's a specific event that you're passionate about, I love to invite those people to help on an inside basis. For instance, the butterfly release. I always need an extra hand at these events. So it's those phone calls and those outreaches that are always welcomed. And um, however people can support us, we really do not only appreciate it dearly, but we welcome that outreach. It's amazing, Jen, because you have a huge spectrum of ways that people can volunteer. They don't have to be afraid that they have to commit, like, such a large part of their life or if they they feel anxious about um, extending themselves into the home. Uh, it's, it's, this is great. There is no reason why you can't volunteer on some type of level. And I know with your, your Q&A resources, amazing. You have videos um, that are there. You have uh, different types of bereavement that you get into uh, and grief. You have uh, learning about advanced directives and living wills, patient safety, patient and family orientation for hospice care. It's outstanding. It really is it with really all is. the amount of information. Unfortunately, we're our journey today is coming to an end. Uh, However, I'd like, uh, Jennifer, you're welcome to come back whenever you like. Uh, We'll gladly post all of your events uh, on uh, Astrid's uh, notices that are on my timeline every day. Um, Just let her know when you're doing anything, and she'll send it to me, and we'll get it posted. Um, And please repeat the different ways that people can contact you and get involved. Because I was at the Butterfly That was awesome. That was life-changing. Well, Hercules, thank you for saying so, and it was so great to meet you there. And, um, again, thank you and Astrid for sharing your time with me and helping or giving me a platform to talk about something that we are so proud of. But um, people can reach out to the Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice. Um, Certainly, I'd mention the website, KarenAnnQuinlanHospice.org. Our administrative office is 800 882-1117. And if you call that number and you're seeking another avenue, possibly the Bereavement Center or the Home for Hospice, we can direct you from that number. Um, My contact information, Jennifer Smith, Manager at Special Events. I invite you to um, reach out, inquire more about what we do. And again, Astrid and Hercules, your show is fantastic, and I'm so thankful to have this opportunity. Oh, we are blessed to have you on and to have a great nonprofit organization such as the Karen Ann Quinlan Center here in Sussex County. Now, it is amazing. It really is. So I thank you and the entire center, all the people involved with it, you know, for all the hard efforts placed to do good for others. Thank you. And thank you. Um, we're going to listen to We Can't Hold Hands While We're Pointing Fingers by Brian Tredorian. Uh Thanks again, Astrid. Thanks again, Jen. Uh, that was an awesome segment, and I stand by what I said earlier. I'm blessed by knowing many wonderful people. Um, and uh, our next segment is going to be I in Northern New Jersey, hosted by Bill Waitman. The guest will be Sue Davies.
not patriotic, so to speak. Oh, but borders don't mean much to me. And freedom don't mean much when not everyone is free. So tonight I'll lay down and try to sleep. I try to see things in a different light. Yeah, that's the only way I know how to live my life. Well, but a few of us just don't know how to live and let live. That's what I consider often. Oh, 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 sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will always linger. You can't hold hands when you are pointing fingers. There's a man who's different by his looks. Yeah, he lives his life by a different book. But they say he's not one of us. That makes him a danger. Why should we have to tolerate this stranger? I think you'd be surprised if you saw. Just like how we really are. Oh, you can't judge that book by what is on its cover. You see, the stranger really is our brother. Oh, sticks and stones could break my bones, but words will always linger. You can't hold hands when you are pointing fingers. Yeah, sticks and stones could break my bones, but hate will always linger. You can't hold hands when you are pointing fingers. Muslim, Christian, pagan, atheist, or Jew, all the rest we're all human too. Yeah, just celebrate all those things that we think make us different. I guarantee you'd see the bigger picture. Let's all gather up and form a ring. Around the wide, wide world and we will sing The song of Mother Earth The song that tells the tale Of how the human race and love prevails Oh, 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 sticks and stones could break my bones But words will always linger You can't hold hands when you are pointing fingers Yeah, sticks and stones could break my bones, but hate will always linger. You can't hold hands when you are pointing fingers.
whereby peace and love to stand. Heart to heart and hand in hand, Marco's spirit, hear us now, confirming this our sacred vow. Peace, love, and blessed be. Yeah, peace, love, and blessed be. Peace, love, and blessed be. Peace, love, and blessed be. Greetings and welcome back to the Elysium Project. Our final segment for the day is I on Northern New Jersey, hosted by the legendary Bill Waitman, and his guest tonight is Sue Davies. I'm greatly looking forward uh, to this uh, segment. Greetings and welcome. Oh, it's good. It's good to be here, Hercules. Uh, this this is Sue. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Oh, good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming back. Uh, you're an awesome guest. I'm looking forward to learning all about uh, uh, the independent voters movement today. Cool. Great. <laughs> We're ready. Okay, Bill, I give uh, you the scepter of Zeus, and the show is now yours. <laughs> Thank you very much, Hercules. Sue, so, uh, okay. it's a pleasure. Uh, you've been on before, as Hercules uh, uh, basically hinted or just mentioned. Um we're glad to have you back. Uh, you uh, represent basically with independentvoting.org uh, about 2 million New Jerseyans, uh, and uh, that's a strong factor. And, and I just was going through the list of states that have uh, open primaries or partial primaries or one party allowing, uh, and, and that'll be an issue we'll talk about. I mean, um, I, I mean from Alabama. Uh, to Oklahoma, uh, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Virginia, Wisconsin. Uh, and there are other states like Arizona, which has open primaries for all elections except presidential primaries, and uh, mm-hmm. Louisiana and California under Proposition 14, which was a measure that was passed, uh, I believe, in 2011, and I was a member of your organization then. Uh, life <laughs> changed my course. But uh, why don't we start? Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in this. Okay. Well, I've been involved in independent politics since 1986 or 85, somewhere thereabouts. Um, I originally, well, I grew up uh, and I wanted to be Bella Abzug or Liz Holtzman. I wanted to be the U.S. Senator from, uh, from New York. Uh, I was originally born in New York. And raised there. I went to college, majored in political science, and then did an internship on Capitol Hill during the Reagan budget cut years. And I, I worked okay. for an, an, anom- an anomaly now. I worked, uh, and my internship was with the, North, the Northeast Midwest Congressional Coalition, which had a House side and a Senate side. And it was a coalition that was Democrats and Republicans. And they actually worked together on economic issues that faced the Northeast of the U.S. Um, those, those kinds of coalitions don't exist anymore because Republicans and Democrats, for the most part, uh, aren't found in the same rooms working together. Um, but while I watched all the wheeling and dealing, I spent a lot of my time watching Congress work, uh, mostly on the Senate side. And 
after that, I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with electoral politics ever again, because what I saw was wheeling and dealing. And um, it wasn't about what the American people needed even back then, even though there was much more centrist Democrats and centrist Republicans that actually could work together. Um, I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with electoral politics again. Later on, I met some people who were working in the field of independent politics, and they convinced me that what we needed to do was start working on the independent side, that we needed, um, at that point in time, a third party in this country. And then I worked on Dr. Lenore Filani's historic campaign for president. She was actually the first woman and the first African-American to run for president in all 50 states in 1988, and I worked on her campaign. And after that, I, I became much more committed to independent politics. Um, since then, I have run for office as an independent. I have managed independent campaigns. I have worked on INR ballot initiatives. I have done all sorts of things. And most recently, about five years ago, I moved from Manhattan to Jersey City. And then I started New Jersey Independent Voters and have been working on opening up our electoral process and structural reform um, since then. You know, I um, there's a woman there in Jersey City who has done like a startup paper, um, it's, uh, and just I, I think as I told you in a conversation, she uh, had a medallion. Uh, but she, mm-hmm. uh, the current mayor, I don't know how he figures in you. I mean, I've suffered under many mayors because I went to school and I lived in Jersey City for a while. I, I mean, the I mean the funniest one I ever met was. Uh, well, I don't know. There were a couple of funny ones, but uh, Tommy Smith, who was a mayor, and then at some point uh, he didn't want to run anymore. He went back to his own owned, uh, uh, clerk job at, at uh, City Hall. But um, it's uh, it's always been an interesting city, a casebook study with uh, the Hague administration, uh, Margaret Hague Hospital, and, and some of the things going on. Sometimes politics at its worst. And maybe sometimes at least fair, uh, rarely. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear your background. Uh, I had the pleasure of um, being in a room at Bell Labs. So, uh, it was a course that I took at Fordham. And uh, uh, the professor, uh, it was a course on feminism. So it, it, was, it was a pleasure meeting her. And uh, just the other day I heard the other – uh, what was she a congresswoman uh, or a set? Uh, I can't remember. If she was a congresswoman or a senator. Uh, um, Absent uh, was a congresswoman. Liz Holson was a senator. Okay, um, and she worked yeah. on um, the. Was she in the impeachment trial of Nixon, or or am I too early? Um, I think she was later, but I have to admit I was. 13 during the impeachment trial <laughs> of Nixon. So, um, but it, she was around then, you know. But for me, having outspoken Jewish women politicians was something I thought was really important and good. Um, I mean, I love Bella Absent was really my, my model of, of what I was hoping to be. Um, but then I realized in order to do that, you had to really get ingrained in the Democratic Party. And then you had to toe the line of the Democratic Party. You had to do whatever they said. You had to wait in line. You had to like – and I was too independent for that even as a kid. You know, I, uh, mm-hmm. I didn't want people telling me what to think or what to do. Um, 
I wanted to make my own decisions. And that's what the essence of being an independent is. I I ran once as an independent. I thought I was running with the Green Party. It was actually called New Jersey Independence. Um, I think I would have done better with the Green Party. But I kind of, mm-hmm. kind of understand. I was supposed to run uh, this year for the assembly out of uh, the 24th district. And uh, I had a gentleman on who was a party chair from one of the counties. And he told me, Bill, run, run. And then I think somebody maybe the, out of the governor's office or the governor himself said, handpicked uh, two candidates. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I really was angered at that. First of all, I would have, I, I've always told the Democratic Party, and one of the things I'm interested to talk to you about it is open primaries. But I said, we have to have people on the ballot in, uh, you know, have somebody debating each other uh, but mm-hmm. in a primary. And what they did is they picked two people. They didn't fill uh, the two freeholder slots. Uh, one lady was a lobbyist uh, from a big insurance company uh, in Sussex County. And the other one, uh, I don't know. I, I think he owns a bar. But um, I was kind of really hurt by that. And I had told Hercules I was thinking of running uh, as an independent or, or something along those lines. So I can see what you say. I agree with you um, 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had to do it again, and I'm thinking about it, I, maybe I would run as an independent because uh, the Democrats really have never put up a strong f- force. And there was one election up in my area where I was the only one on the ballot in the whole county, and I yeah. found that really bizarre. I ran for assembly then. That was 1993. I don't know if you know, remember the name Scott Garrett, but uh, mm-hmm. he was very – I got along from a while, and there was another guy uh, who eventually went to uh, motor vehicle after he big slumped. I got 34, 35% of the vote, but they overall swamped me because you can't do that yeah. by yourself. I had my kids, yeah. one kid anyway, uh, doing it. Um, I'm looking on a national level. We talk about 2 million uh, voters in New Jersey that are uh, independent. And then I'm looking at, I guess, data from, uh, I'm going to say 2018, uh, roughly, uh, I don't have numbers other than percentages, 42% of U.S. adults that uh, vote are, uh, are independent, 31% uh, Democrats and 24% of, GO, uh, of, of, of Republicans. So I think that... Um, those figures, we already know that 96 million people didn't vote in the last election. Uh, they stayed mm-hmm. home, and and the margin of that stayed home was greater than the amount of people that voted, uh, which is ironical. How do you think we can change this, and what are your hopes? Well, I mean, open farmer is number one. It's the number one thing I think that's going to change this. So it's hard to have good voter turnout when you're locking out 42% of the electorate. Actually, I think the new national figures I just heard are 45% of the electorate is now independent. We expect that during the presidential primary season in 2020, that at least 30 million voters will not be allowed to vote in their state primaries because they're registered as independents. In uh, the last June primaries in New Jersey, the turnout was 7.7%. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think one, uh, to your question, you said what to do about voter 
participation. One is you need to allow independents to vote. There are more independents than there are Democrats or Republicans in this state. 2.4 million people, you're saying, stay home. And not only that, okay, on top of that, you need to have primaries that are competitive. So I think I, I told you on the phone the other day, uh, we did an experiment. New Jersey independent voters did an experiment. And New Jersey independent voters is made up of people who are independent-minded, some of whom are registered independents, some of whom have chosen for various reasons to be registered as Democrats or Republicans, mainly because they want to participate in primaries. So we did an experiment. We sent some of our independent voters to vote in the primaries. And we knew that when we did that, our registration would be automatically changed to whichever party we voted, primary we voted in. I went to my primary, and I said to them, I brought with me a voter registration form. I said, listen, I know once I vote, you're going to change my registration to Democrat. That was the primary I chose to vote in. I want to immediately re-register as an independent. They would not take my voter registration form. They also told me that my registration wouldn't change, which completely not right. Um, every wow. voter every voter we sent, every independent we sent got a different story at their election. Not only that, when I did go in to vote and um, the all of the every primary was non competitive. There was only one race where there was more than one candidate. So you're gonna tell people you have to take time off from work, you have to get to the polls, you have to vote, but we're only going to give you one candidate. Um, okay. I think the message that people are sending is that if the election is not meaningful and if you tell me I can't participate, I'm not going to go. Um, so you've got to make our, our elections much more meaningful. But see, here's the, here's the fundamental issue. There's a lot of things you can do to fix our elections, to make better elections. The biggest problem is that our election process and our governing process is completely broken. We have such dysfunction and partisan gridlock that we can't solve the major problems this country is facing. And part of why New Jersey independent voters and independent voting nationally is focused on structural election reform is that if we don't fix our electoral process, we don't fix our governing process, you can't solve any of the problems we're facing. So we've got to deal with the fundamental issue that our electoral process is broken and it needs fixing. And there's a lot of ways to fix it, including allow all voters to vote. That's like a, a fundamental tenet of democracy, right? Allow all voters to vote. Um, and we don't, hey, we don't follow that. No. <laughs> it's sad. That's a sad commentary because, you know, uh, I know that if you look at, and I know you know a lot about travel, but I won't go into that. But <laughs> if you take a country like France, uh, I would say that the vote is, there's 70 million people, I believe, and the vote the total is pretty close to, uh, you know, 80, I would say 80%. While mm -hmm. uh, any election around here would be 40%, uh, you yeah. know, uh, uh, of the total. And that, that doesn't make much sense. Uh, for a democracy and a democracy right. going what we're going under now. Um, I'm trying to figure out, I, uh, I had done a, a master's thesis on uh, political participation and uh, with alienation. I came up with a scale to create alienation. I use it on college kids. And the basis was the more that they were involved in organizations and things, the more likely would they, they would be to vote. I never considered independent voters. I mean, there was a correlation that uh, the more the kids were 
involved, and this was a commuter college in Jersey City. It was a, mm-hmm. a Jersey State, which is now New Jersey City University. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, a, a large percentage of the kids that, uh, like me, I didn't come from uh, Hudson County. I came from uh, Bergen County up the border. Now I'm in Sussex County, which is <laughs> less of a political. It's like Sussex County is the um, the Republican vote in Hudson County. <laughs> you could you could understand mm-hmm. uh, yep. uh, the situations. Yep. But yeah, there were variables there, power, powerlessness, and I found ways of measuring that, and uh, self-esteem I threw in there, and uh, 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 the social estrangement feeling from the system. I remember going to Jersey City State with uh, a kid that was like, the, uh, he was the president of the Republican Club, and he had about five members in him. A, there were a lot of commuters, but there weren't many, uh, uh, you know, Republicans in that particular county. So it's it's. I still think today that you know uh, powerlessness. You don't have if you're an independent, you can't vote. You feel that sense of powerlessness that my vote maybe doesn't count. Uh, and you're right. You just gave us figures on that. So um, mm-hmm. do you see any ways to, to anything that we can do, and how do we encourage these uh, people to either be independent or somehow force their states to have there are states where one party has an open primary. Am I correct? Like, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. uh, the other one uses. And this election, yeah. even if both parties were willing, I, I haven't read the statement from the three Republican candidates that are running against Trump, but um, uh, I, I, I think that this would be a factor that, A, they can't have even, they, they can't even enter. There will be no choice mm-hmm. other than in those states, and that I, that boggles my mind. So is that actually legal? I mean, is, is there anything? I mean, is that legal that you can just declare that there will be no primaries? Well, there's four republic. There's four states that already declared they're not having Republican primaries. There are. I mean, can they do it? It really depends state by state what the rules are of those states. Right now. The parties have this thing that they they have it always, right? When you say to them you need to open your primaries to independent voters, they say, no, we're a private club, and we only have people who are part of our club be able to vote. But at the same time, the tax dollars of all of the taxpayers actually pay for the primaries. So they you can't have it both ways. Um, the no. Supreme Court ruled in 19, I think, 86 it was, in Tasjin versus the Republican Party in the Supreme Court that the parties could open their primaries should they so decide to do that. They have the right to, to do that. In my opinion, they don't have the right to do that and also take our tax dollars um, to pay for their primaries. If they're a private club, they're a private club, and they can do what they want. It's a private club, but they should self-fund their primaries and, and not take my tax dollars to do it. Um, so I think state by state, yes, they can make decisions about how they want to hold their primaries. Um, they are, but they're also risking, in my opinion, alienating a huge segment of voters. So in Arizona, last time around, um, thousands and thousands of voters went to the polls thinking they could vote in the primaries. So in Arizona, it's got a funny situation where the primaries are open except the presidential preference election. 
where the right. presidential, you know, so all the other ones are, are open. So people went to the polls thinking they could vote and they got turned away. So who got turned away? Let's talk about this. Millennials, 50% of millennials are, are registering unaffiliated. Um, 40% or so of Latino voters in Arizona are not registered in either party. A huge segment mm-hmm. of Af- Afghanistan and Iraqi war veterans are not registered in each party, in either party. So that's who's getting lost out when you're doing this. So the two parties run the risk of becoming, of alienating the very voters that they say that they want to include in the parties. So that's the message that's getting sent down. Now, on the other hand, there are some places where some stuff, some progress is really being made. I mean, Nebraska opened up its primaries a few years ago, and Shane Cleave, who's the chair of the Nebraska Democratic Party, is very outspokenly in favor of open primaries. In Pennsylvania, they just passed a bill in the Senate to open their primaries. Now, we don't know what's going to happen relative to the Assembly and the governor, but it was passed, and two of the people who testified in favor of that bill were the former chairs of the Democratic and Republican parties. Florida, they are, um, they, in, in three of the Democratic Party county committees have voted in favor of open primaries. It's going to be decided on by the whole state. So Miami-Dade, Broward County, um, Santa Rosa County, some of the biggest counties in the state are saying we should open our primaries. Um, so there's actually, a, you know, and, and if you go back to Florida, Florida voted that um, felons ought to be able to get the right to vote back, which um, is a democracy move as well when you think about who is disproportionately convicted of felonies in this country. It's African-American men who deserve yes. their time and then can't vote anymore after that. So there's there's a bunch of things happening that show that there's some movement around opening primaries. and some, you know, forward-thinking political leaders that are looking looking at that. And I think that in Arizona, actually, on Saturday, they're doing their vote. They're voting whether or not to open the presidential preference elections to independent candidates. And, and so, that, that seems one of the things, too, that they may be not in the uh, – uh, they don't allow for the vote for the president, but uh, hopefully more states would open up. You, I remember starting with I started with uh, independentvoting.org when uh, I guess it was Proposition 14 uh, was passed in California. What does that mm-hmm. allow? Can Can you explain that? Uh, is California fully open for open primaries? Well, it's top two um, is what California has, and it allows the top two candidates. Um, in the primary, it's an open primary. It's the top two candidates um, in the primaries are the ones that go on to the, the final election. So um, what it's resulted in, in California is more diversity of candidates, more difference, more dialogue, less, less people relying on I'm a Democrat and so I'm going to get the Democratic line. I'm a Republican. I'm going to get the Republican line. I only need to talk to Republicans. If I'm a Republican, I only need to talk to the Democrats, if I'm a Democrat, um, it's created much more dialogue and discussion uh, and much more diverse set of candidates that have ended up in the, you know, in, in the final election. So I think it's been really fantastic for California. I think so, too. I agree with you. Uh, yeah. One thing in nearby state, which you grew up in and I went to school in, uh, New York, 
Now, I understand there's a provision allowing possibly for open primaries, but currently only the Independence Party chooses to allow unaffiliated voters to uh, participate. Um, yeah. Is that yeah, about I mean, to change? Or is, it, is Cuomo and the legislature, will they push such initiatives? No, I don't think Cuomo is interested in that initiative at all. In fact, um, Just a, uh, yeah, I think Cuomo is interested. Well, I'm not going to say much about Cuomo. I, 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 he's not Democratic. He's not somebody who's inclusive. Um, he's uh, your typical Democratic Party leader who wants to control the base and wants only to happen what he thinks should happen is what should happen. So New York is going to be a tough state to get open primaries in, in my opinion. I think there's going to be a lot of dominoes in other places before New York um, goes with open primaries, but I could be wrong, you know. Um, I mean, we're sort of projecting that by the 2024 presidential race that 50% of this country is going to be registered unaffiliated. You know, that's some of the uh, people that I've been speaking to, that's their pro- projection. So by 2024, if you have more than 50% of the people unaffiliated parties, hopefully we begin to have a tipping point, and hopefully independents begin to be able to flex their political muscle because um, right now we are we're not we haven't been flexing our political muscle. We've got to figure out how to do that. Now you can see it in small places, as I said. There's four states where there's real movement happening around independent primaries, and it is pushed by independents and a coalition of good government groups. There are, you know, a whole host of other things happening around the country. So I think that um, I think there's much more of this to come. Well, I'm even looking at Ohio, and it says Ohio. What I'm looking at says it's semi-open. What would that What would that mean? Well, that's technically also what you might consider New Jersey. I think semi-open is a wolf in sheep's clothing, in my opinion. Semi-open means things like, uh, I'm not sure exactly the, uh, the exact rules in Ohio, uh, but what it means, like in New Jersey, is that, yes, oh, we're going to tell you, you can come vote, but we're going to automatically change your registration. Um, it's actually a way of decreasing the number of people who are independents and really bullying people into uh, registering with one of the two parties. So semi-open is, in my mind, one of the worst. Uh, and, and a lot of people wouldn't call New Jersey system op- even semi-open because if you vote, your, your registration is changed automatically. Um, there, are places, there are places like New Jersey where you can go on primary day and vote, and then you could resubmit your form immediately to unregister and become unaffiliated again. Um, in New Jersey, you're automatically changed. You can't change your registration back for 55 days. I mean, you can submit the form, but they're not going to change you for 55 days. Um, it's a way of suppressing the number of independents that we have. That's in my opinion. Um, people want to vote in the primaries. And so people will say, okay, if I have to, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be a Democrat just because I want to vote in the primaries or I'll be a Republican because I want to vote in the primaries. Really, in my opinion, is that who you want on your team? <laughs> like, do no. you want people on your team because they want to be on your team or because you bullied them into your team? You know. You want them to uh, want to be there. You know, you yeah, mentioned this. So. <laughs> What's that? You mentioned this. 
Go ahead. I cut you off. I apologize. No, no, no. I didn't know it. I did, I just hadn't heard what you said. Okay. You had mentioned uh, young people. Um, and one of the surprises in the last election, 18 to 29 voters jumped from a low of 20% up, up to about 36%. And uh, I expect that to rise uh, in this coming election. Um uh, would, and I know many of them would like to vote in these primaries. Um, what do you think is going to happen in the long run? Will you see growing more non-party org- uh, ties, or or is this something that must be forced forced to change? If I make any, I don't know if I'm making it clear. I'm babbling a little bit. Well, let me see if I understand your question. You want to? You're thinking what's going to happen as as millennials become more and more of the electorate, is that yes? And I what think you're one of the largest, they may be the largest group now. I mean, traditionally, yeah. people sixty-five uh, uh, women—it's around sixty-five percent of them uh, turn out to vote, and uh, for males, uh, it's sixty-eight percent. I don't know how accurate those statistics are, but uh, the, yeah. the jump for millennials was really a, a kind of a shock. I didn't yeah. even realize. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's going to continue to grow. Now, millennials overwhelmingly are not registering in a political party, okay? Uh, In a lot of states, 50% of millennials are registering unaffiliated or independent. So, And they are not – I mean, here's the thing. Um, People in this country care. I I really, really get annoyed when people start saying people don't vote because they're apathetic. No. People, they go to church, they volunteer. They give huge amounts of money voluntarily. So people in this country mm-hmm. really care about what happens in this country. And if you go out on the street and talk to people, you will discover in five minutes they care deeply. What they do not like is an electoral process that doesn't work, that results in a government that is dysfunctional and doesn't work at all. Millennials are going to become a bigger and bigger and bigger slice of the pie, as you said. Um, they, they do not want to be in either political party. And millennials of color, Latino, African-American, they don't they, – a strong percentage of them are not wanting to be in either political party. They want to vote for the candidate and the people and the positions they feel best represent them. And so that's what the future is of our electoral system. And forward-thinking um, elected officials, Democrats, Republicans, whatever they're – registered as see this. So you see somebody like Jane Cleave, who is the chair of the Democratic Party in Nebraska, going all in on open primaries and advocating it with other Democratic Party leaders around the country because she sees that it's really important to engage the independent voter. Um, Independent voters gave Obama his victory. Independent voters then swung and gave Trump his victory partially because people are voting because they don't like what's happening and they're trying to vote for change. However, I may or may not agree with what people did. There's a huge segment of people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. And what they were voting for is they were voting against the political parties. They were voting against the political system as it stands now. Um, We have a problem. We have a real problem. We don't have a government that can solve the problems we're facing. And we don't have a, gov- a political process that will give us the political leaders who can solve those problems. And millennials see that. And a lot of people see that. And that's why you see such dissatisfaction with our political process. I um, uh, It's not really a pol- – well, it is a political matter. I've been fo- following artificial intelligence 
uh, on all levels. And I see lo- huge job losses coming within the next couple of years. And uh, I don't, uh, you know, in the Democratic primary, Mr. F- I, I guess his name is Fang, uh, was talking about mm-hmm. giving a thousand yeah. dollars or something. And I know that's based on a conservative. At some point, conservatives and uh, Democrats come together, I guess, uh, by Milton Freeman. But uh, millennials will have a big stake in this. And simultaneously, uh, I would say middle-aged people are going to take the brunt of uh, punishment on this because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're really not going to – we're going to all of a sudden lose maybe 48 to 87 million jobs in this country. I have never seen anything like this. And, uh, I I mean, I've watched whole industries disappear like yarn winding. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. uh, box factories where they make the boxes and they run them along, you know, a huge thing, but they've cut down the size of the staff and, and the process and the automobile industry. We have a strike going on with 50,000 workers at mm-hmm. uh, General Motors. Um, so I think both millennials and uh, you know, maybe even their parents are going mm-hmm. to have some tough, we're all going to have some tough times ahead. So politics yeah. needs to change its face. And uh, do you see that possible? I mean, I know that you you must because you're in this uh, or you're all in on this. Yeah, I am. I'm very hopeful. I mean, I see more movement happening. As you as I you know from the beginning, I told you I've been an independent since 1986 or 85, somewhere thereabouts. Um, and back then, we would go out on the streets and people would say, "Oh, it's illegal to be an independent." Um, people had no conception of it. So, so much has changed since then. You had the Perot candidacy. You had, you know, the attempted national, the national phone party for a while. You have um, now, so we went from people telling me on the street in 1985 that it was, they thought it was illegal to be an independent to, you know, 45% of the country now being registered unaffiliated. That's a huge swing. Now, Bill we have Sue, always... I'm sorry for interrupting, but uh, we only have a couple of uh, minutes left, and uh, uh, I lost track of time. This has been so interesting. Uh, Sue, can you share how people can contact you and find out more about your initiative? Sure. Um, the easiest way to find us is our national um, website is independentvoting.org, um, and there you can also find the New Jersey chapter. Um, so that's one of the easiest ways to find us. We also have, um, I just wanted to put a little plug, we have our 19th annual Anti-Corruption Awards coming up October 25th, where we're actually bringing some key leaders from all over the country, including Jane Cleave, um, to New York uh, to be honored for their work around this. So uh, go on the website and find out about that. We have a national conference call. We also, if you're trying to get a hold of me directly, it's New Jersey Independent Voters. Um, at gmail.com and uh, so those those are some of the ways we also have a Facebook page which you can look up on Facebook which is New Jersey Independent Voters um, at Facebook page so if you search for that you'll find us as well I repeated all the links that you provided in the the notices so people will be able to to link there and thank you for these new links Mm -hmm. Bill thank you very much and uh, uh, Sue we have to do a part uh, two (laughs) this was very engaging (laughs) and very informative so thanks to both of you thanks to our audience for listening in 
until next time, this is Hercules Invictus, Bill Waitman and Sue Davies wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Thank you.